Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Sure. My name is Claude Smith. Give me a little background on where you work. You have multiple roles in your job. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I'm the Exhibitions and Fulcrum Fund Program Manager at 516 Arts in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, we're a very small, what we consider a non-collecting contemporary art museum. So kind of more of a European model, like a Kunsthal. We don't have a permanent collection. We don't represent artists in a traditional kind of gallery, commercial gallery format. We work with independent curators, guest curators. We do projects in-house when the when the opportunity presents itself. And generally, our exhibition, exhibition themes to kind of touch on a lot of everyday topics from environmental issues to social justice to immigration. U.S.-Mexico border is something that we keep coming back to every, every few years since it, we're in the Southwest, and that's a very important issue for us. And we try and incorporate as many local artists or New Mexico-based artists as we can in our programming and in conjunction with national and international artists. Trying to kind of place New Mexico within that global context of emergent themes, themes that are going on and we'll share some share some overlap here in, in our state. Okay. Now, how did you come to that role? One thing I'm always interested in is sort of how do creative people get made? So like, your, were your parents creative? Did you have some great teachers? Like, how did you even sort of come up through the ranks here? I mean, I guess art has always been a part of my life. My my father is, he's a, he's a studio artist. He's a, he's a potter. He's a photographer. He's taught, or he taught at Western New Mexico University in Silver City, New Mexico, which is in the Southwest corner of the state. And he taught there for over 35 years and he maintains an active studio practice in, in his house in Silver City. My mom is a musician. And so music and art kind of go hand in hand ever since I was growing up. It's always kind of definitely played a very central role in the way I interacted with other people, the way I interacted with my parents and things like that. So art was very important. I uh, went to the University of New Mexico and graduated with dual degrees in biology and art history. I was, I was kind of interested more in the science aspect. I had some some thoughts about becoming a herpetologist, which is somebody who specializes in reptiles and amphibians. But as I kind of progressed in that, I, I, I think that the, I was taking supplemental art history classes because I was interested in it, and it ultimately kind of took over my interest in kind of a larger sense. And so I kind of transitioned into trying to pursue a, a, a career in, in art. And when I was graduating, I talked to a number of counselors and, and they, they're, you know, kind of getting a sense of what, what can I do, you know, with a degree in art history. And they were like, well, you got to teach. That's, that's, you're going to be a professor. That's, that's what you have to do. And I was like, well, okay. I mean, I guess, I mean, I applied to grad school and it was the, like the height of the, the financial crisis in 2008. And I, and I applied to three, three institutions and I did not get accepted. And so I was kind of like scratching my head going back to the drawing board thinking like, I don't really know what's going to happen here. So during that time I had been kind of getting involved in, I guess, museum studies, you could say. And uh, I was volunteering at a number of institutions to try and just get a sense of what was out there, what kind of maybe different career paths might lead to. And that ultimately led me to 
516 Arts, where I'm currently employed. And I started out kind of with an in with with a with an interest in you know preparator work and, and building. I've always my 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 dad and I always did a lot of construction projects at at home, woodworking and things like that. So that was always something that was interesting interesting to me. And then that kind of transitioned also into like taking over educational educational responsibilities within the organization, leading school tours, interfacing with students, coordinating workshops, presenting, you know, talks to, to, to classrooms, things like that, as they related to our exhibition content. And then that kind of progressed even further into I eventually took over all of the exhibitions, which is, you know, everything from coordinating with artists, with artwork selections to make sure that they fit in the space, they're appropriate for the space, details about their installation, if it's something that we can facilitate, if it's something that we can, what kind of supports or different kinds of configurations for the for the museum that we need to do to kind of building things like pedestals and framing and a lot of a lot of different aspects, you know, with like the phys- like working with the physicality the physical aspect of, of our work, which is, which has always been exciting, but also to meeting other people, learning from independent curators, guest curators about how they work and artwork shipping, transportation. Yeah. So that's kind of like a, 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 a very, I guess, abbreviated version of, of how I've got here, but I guess it's kind of unconventional. You know, I, I, I don't have a graduate degree. I don't have a degree in curatorial studies or museum studies or anything like that. So I've just kind of basically learned everything that I know from experience. So it's been, it's been a great, great journey. Totally random question though. 516, is that area code there? Well, the area code is 505, but the the address that we're located is 516 Central. And so, okay. yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't live there. So I just sort of wanted to everybody has Everybody has the same question. And, and oftentimes it's with pronunciation. Some people call it 516. Some people call it 516. Okay. So first question would be about exhibitions. So you work at a museum that's not collecting, but you're doing exhibitions. So I'm always fascinated as to how a museum sort of sets up its, um, I don't even know what it would be called, the program for how it lays out its its exhibitions. Because from what I saw about 516 is it's seems to be a one large primary room like how many do you have different exhibition spaces because you seem to have like four exhibitions going on simultaneously yeah right now we have as with a lot of arts organizations we have some digital programming so that kind of takes up takes up space on our website which maybe seem like we have more more things going on than we do right now we have one exhibition we have so so it's a two-floor building it's it's kind of a commercial commercial building street front with large glass windows that was converted 20 years ago. So sometimes we use that two floor as kind of a, a, a device. I, w- I mean, I guess you could call it to either split to have two concurrent exhibitions. Sometimes they might be small group exhibitions. Sometimes they might be solo exhibitions. Sometimes they're related. Sometimes they're not related. Other times, as in right now, we have a current exhibition that is just spread out over the two floors. Two different kind of vibes, though, like downstairs is, has a little bit higher ceilings with concrete floors. Upstairs, seems it feels more intimate. It's hardwood floors. The lighting kind of, I guess, feels more accommodating and with, with a sense of intimacy. So generally, inst- like larger installation works, bigger things go downstairs, smaller things, not always, but works on paper, things like that tend- generally tend to 
want to be upstairs. When you're sitting around thinking about the things, so like I, you, we talked a little bit before we started and you, sometimes you work with outside curators, sometimes you curate things yourselves. So do you have like open calls for curators to submit ideas? Do you, um, do you all in-house sort of come up with ideas and then seek out curators? Like, so what's the sort of nuts and bolts process of, of coming up with a program and then sort of implementing it? Yeah. I mean, we do do all of those that, that you mentioned. I would say it's a pretty fluid process. We're like, I would say 94. 90 to 95 percent grant funded so we're always two to three years in advance sometimes trying to figure out what our programming schedule is going to be like you know we're, we apply sometimes like for example to the nea we apply nine months in advance and then we don't find out until three months before the exhibition is supposed to happen whether or not we we get the grant and sometimes it's too late at that point to to kind of cancel so we kind of you have to work with it to kind of reconfigure the budget so that we can make it make it work. But a lot of times we'll get, we'll get people that are kind of in our network that will propose ideas for exhibitions that will kind of do some preliminary research on or kind of feel out our, you know, grant schedule to see if there's a way we can plug it in to make, to make it work. Other times we'll have, you know, an exhibition, like we have a couple solo exhibitions coming up and we're working with an outside curator to, who has worked with this artist to kind of do some writing, make some, make some selections and kind of work with us to do the, you know, that, you know, the exhibition, exhibition layout. So it kind of really depends. And I guess it, you know, from year to year, it changes. It's always, it's always different. We, we do work with sometimes when the, when the opportunity presents itself, we might work with the same people a couple of times, depending on what kind of projects they have. But it's, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really open and fluid, but we're always kind of trying to keep our, keep our eyes out for things that are interesting. And, and, and I will say we do work with traveling exhibitions too. We earlier, the, uh, let's see what year is this, or earlier this year, we, we brought, you know, an exhibition from, from Mexico for the, you know, just like we're four and a half hours from Juarez. And so we brought an, ex- an exhibition of Tanya Candiani's work across the border kind of to be in the United States for the first time. And, you know, we opened the show and then it promptly closed because of the, the, the pandemic. So we're always, we're always kind of open to different opportunities. And it's just a matter of if, how we can fit that into our schedule and make it work. Okay. You mentioned that you're primarily grant funded. I'm all about the granting system. I want to know more about that kind of stuff as well. Much of this podcast is about sort of like, the nuts and bolts of like, how do we be successful or continue to do even just continue to do what we want to do, especially now in these times. So it's more about like the literal, like, how do you do these things? Cause so like when you're looking for grants, I would imagine you all, like I've had this discussion with other guests on the podcast about the grants that exist in the United States are oftentimes programmatic grants so like they're great for a workshop or an outreach or a possibly even an exhibition but they generally are not very good with helping with operating budgets yep yeah and that's and that's definitely the the drawback is we can always get program funding but how do we maintain staffing and salaries and keeping the doors open and things like that too so we do have a number of kind of local grants that we have been kind of getting that have been sustaining us. And, and and I would say that they're kind of more developed out of 
personal relationship with the, you know, the executive director and this, this philanthropist who has been a great support over the years. And that, you know, we primarily use for admin support, but, you know, t- typical things that people apply for the national endowment for the arts, those are all, you know, programmatic support. They, they, they do. I think they allow you, I don't, I don't write the grants myself, you know, I help gather information and, and kind of, work on descriptions with our full-time grant writer who's who does a tremendous job for us as well but i think they do allow a pers- like a small percentage of you know the, the total budget to go towards overhead but you know it's it's kind of overhead with respect to that particular program it's not sustaining you for the rest of the year so that's always that's always a challenge but our executive director's really creative with with funding and can usually stretch things out and you know, just made it work for quite a, since 2006. So definitely some, some, some good work there. So within your exhibitions, so like walk us through like a, uh, how does a typical exhibition get coordinated? Because I mean, I know you're going to sit back and probably like think of either an idea or an inspiration or whatever, but then beyond that, beyond this sort of the fun creative stuff there's then the okay well we want to do this but then we have to write a grant so if we need a grant to help fund this or if we need to go find a sponsor or find a whatever we then need to add in this additional educational element or outreach element or whatever like so like an exhibition these days is never just an exhibition like there's always got to be some additional things to them so like what's that process of like how do you balance the choice of what would be an amazing exhibition with what would also be a strong you know additional elements to it to find funding easily right yeah and i think that i think that is important to note is that depending on who you approach for funding there might be some strings that are attached with that or you know they might say, yeah, I'll give you some money contingent. You let us speak at your conference or your symposium or something like that. Or, you know, you put our logo on stuff. And and for the most part, it's, that's all, that's all fine and good. But one of the things that we have to kind of keep in mind is that sometimes, sometimes we do have, you know, kind of the idea of an exhibition, you know, at its core. And, you know, there are kind of things that, you know, maybe align either thematically or conceptually with, with the content that's going on in the exhibition. And we kind of plug in, People who I, I think one of the things that we try and do is connect different audiences. So, you know, for example, if we had a show about the U.S.-Mexico border several years ago, and we did some outreach in the community with some people who were more campaigning in the in in the context of social justice, immigrant rights, DACA, DACA legislation, things like that. So it kind of brings in, you know, like the art is the focal point. There's the context with like the, the premise of, of the conversation, but then that also leads into other types of topics that maybe wouldn't bring people to art necessarily. Like they're coming for the conversation that are, that are going on in our communities or, or in our cities, but it's providing kind of a counterpoint, but somehow all, all related to the exhibition. So it's not always, directly art related anytime for example like if we're working with a large group exhibition and there's you know a number of artists that are participating we might try and identify a few of them to do workshops that kind of help us get out into the community and kind of either teach skills or engage people in different ways as opposed to just kind of coming to see our works in the exhibition we'll do talks to kind of people who have different underlying concepts 
or ideas behind their practice. I mean, that's, that's, that's a really common thing to do as well. You know, and we'll also partner with, you know, other organizations, you know, like I, like I mentioned, social justice organizations to kind of use our exhibition as a platform to talk about what they're doing. And sometimes that's a, you know, sometimes that could be a sponsorship. Other times it's what we just call a partnership or, you know, collaboration where we're kind of, we have these things that we're mutually interested in and, and we think that they're important and we want to kind of help signal boost what they're, what they're talking about. So that's, I mean, that's also kind of like a fluid, a fluid process as well. It's something that we explore as kind of collectively, you know, as a, as, as a staff, we'll, we'll kind of throw ideas around, but generally we always want to have some kind of educational component. And I, you know, if that's through talks, there's sort of like the obligatory talks, but also through workshops, we partner a lot with a, a local independent cinema to do film screenings and, and sometimes different people bring different ideas to the table too. And so we try and incorporate that as much as possible as it, as it makes sense. Totally random question, but I like random questions. Artist fees. Do you all build those in? Do you all do that? Cause I know it's a debate. It is a debate, you know, and it's, it's something that we, we are definitely kind of working in that direction to kind of build that in. So it's kind of a, a permanent set thing. We, we do offer artist fees for, for artists that participate in group exhibitions. So, I mean, in the beginning it was, we had a very, very small budget and like one of the things that we did was, and a lot of commercial galleries do as well, but like shipping was 50, 50, everything was split 50, 50. And now we've kind of recognized that that's not necessarily the best, the best model. It, it doesn't really encourage participation. You know, there's no kind of support for the artist because oftentimes you make the work but you don't have the means to transport you know large work or even you know, if you're multiple exhibitions so one of the things that you know is obviously important is that we're providing support so that people aren't going out of pocket to participate in these things to then you know establish themselves in the art community so yes we we pay we pay 100 percent of shipping costs and we do offer artist fees for for people who are participating in exhibitions and talks and programs, workshops, things like that. So it, it extends beyond just obviously the, the exhibition, but yeah. Okay. That's a great segue to the whole other side of your job, which is the Fulcrum Fund. Is that, am I saying that right? Fulcrum Fund? Fulcrum Fund. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2016, we were invited by the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts to become a regional granting partner, which is this amazing program that they had started. I forget the year exactly when, but it's, it's, it's been around for a while. And I think we were maybe, maybe the eighth or 10th partner. I, I don't remember exactly what, but you know, at the time we were sort of the only, there was, we were kind of up there with like San Francisco and Houston and New Orleans and Miami. And so we were kind of all alone out kind of in the mountain West. And basically they give us a pot of money, which we then regrant to people in in New Mexico, typically it's it's a geographic kind of range requirement that you have to live within 80 miles of Albuquerque, and that you know is something that is set up with each program. I think now they're they they doubled the program this year, which is amazing. Obviously, because of the pandemic, so we kind of flipped our our requirements for the grant or our criteria for the grant to to include people who were experiencing economic loss as a result of the pandemic. So. We did three rounds of regranting for emergency relief grants. Okay. I have a question within that. I noticed I did some research on your website about this grant because I'm all about grants. I love the idea of grants. So I'm, I'm super supportive of them. But 
I feel like a lot of the grants are these ideas of we'll give a lot of people a little bit of money. And I don't know that that necessarily is potentially as helpful. Yeah, that's something that we have gone back and forth with. And everyone, I, I will say everyone in the network, you know, we, we have kind of, we have regular meetings or fairly regular meetings with all the partners where we talk about these things. Like, does it make sense to give, you know, speaking specifically with regard to the emergency relief grants where there's, you know, a smaller amount. Normally it's between two to $10,000 for project-based proposals. But since we're doing emergency relief grants, we opted to do a thousand dollars. And so to date we've given away, or we've, we've granted $217,000. And so for the most part, everybody's getting a thousand dollars. We did support, we got additional funding from the Frederick Hammersley Foundation, which is a local foundation here in Albuquerque to support alternative visual art spaces. So that was kind of a separate round. And so those were larger four to $5,000 grants to help sustain these, these vital spaces to hopefully be able to reopen after the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, the, the amount is something that has come up numerous times and it's, it, if it's, it's hard to kind of figure out what people need, right? It, it feels, you know, some, some places are doing double the amount of grants at $500. I got an email from somebody who was doing $1,500, but we kind of fell in the middle of that because we felt that, I mean, and, and there's like a whole host of other reasons why people felt that, 500 was they wanted to help give a lot of people a small amount because that was also below the threshold for tax reporting so that's another consideration for some people but we just felt that it was a nice obviously we can't help everyone and we can spread it around a little bit more than if we give people you know 10 grants of six thousand dollars for example to a very small number of people yeah just to be clear, I am not questioning you. I'm just saying, like, it's an interesting conversation. Uh, I, I don't know. I, you know. I fall both ways. I don't care how people get the money, artists and, and, and arts organizations. I just want them to get money. But there's the that balance of, like, okay, in my case, what I keep thinking about, and maybe I'm in the minority on this because I don't write a ton of grants, I feel like in general now of course this year might be different with the covid stuff but like in general the application process is so time consuming and and paperwork heavy and administrative heavy and then on the other end well like once you if you receive it you then also have to do a bunch of reporting and all this kind of stuff that sometimes like the $500 are not worth it or the $1000 is not worth the time and the energy but i've heard stories and i'm hoping this sort of falls with you all that basically because of the this year and the COVID, like some people made the process a little easier as far as the paperwork and the reporting because of the speed and the amount of people that need it kind of thing. So they made that, that whole process a little smoother, easier, and maybe not as time consuming. Yeah. And, and I, I, that's, those are, those are all completely valid, great points. And those were all things that we were thinking about when we were having the conversation about how much money to give people, like what the application is going to look like, how accessible it is. Right. Cause we're obviously trying to reach a lot of people in New Mexico. It's a big state. Oh, there's a lot of people who live rurally, like, you know, a lot of, you know, native artists who live on reservations, a lot of other people who live in different parts of the state don't have the same internet access. Like they're professional artists, but not from the standpoint of like, they're showing regularly in commercial galleries or museums or things like that. So they, some people have these like incredible skills, but when it comes to using computers and technology, things like 
sending emails attachment. I mean, and, and that's not a bad thing. It's just sort of like the digital divide is, is very present in, in New Mexico. And there's like the, the, the access to resources isn't obviously equitable by any means. So one of the things that we wanted to do was make things as simple as possible. You know, we have a very easy application. We're basically trying to get some information from people like specifically related to the COVID grants is kind of like how you've been impacted what that's done to your, you know, if, if you're an artisan or you're a professional artist, do you lose money because you can't go to, to markets and things like that to sell your work? Or have you lost out on speaking, speaking gigs or museum exhibitions? Or have you lost sales from your commercial gallery, things like that? But then there's also, we want to know about your practice, how long you've been making work, what kind of work you make. People submit images of their work. Because there, I mean, there definitely is like, like a, a, a degree of quality that we're looking for. We want to make sure that, prof- I mean, I, I use the term professional artists, but people who have invested substantial amount of time in their practice and are proficient at, at, at doing something, I think it's really important. It's a big distinction versus like anybody who just kind of paints in their you know spare time. And, and there's nothing wrong with that too, but you know, we, we want to make sure that we're supporting artists that have lost out on, you know, legitimate, legitimate income as a, as a result of not being able to do business as usual. So all of that's done online. And that's primarily from, from our standpoint of being able to ensure that things are processed very quickly. We do a, a, a jury. We invite panelists from the community to review the application. So it's not us as the organization internally. And then, you know, from, I think that this third round that we just did, we, we've done three rounds so far. I just finished sending money to the last couple people last week. And so I think from, we, we were open for submissions for a month and then we started sending out money as soon as the, the selections were made. So I think it had a turnaround time of less than six weeks, which I feel really, and to be honest, most of that accounts for time is we can process funding as quickly as people can get paperwork back to us. And in some cases that was like the same day as a notification other, other times where it was like harder to get a hold of people due to issues with email and, and things like that. It, it might take a little bit longer, but. Okay. I have a question. I'm all about grants again, love grants. One of my big concerns about grants is that as a person, like I'm an artist and I'm a professor myself. And so like, I'm often looking at grants or, or applying for grants. I never understand the criteria by which they, like they try their best to spell it out and everybody does. And don't get me wrong. They give sort of certain things, but, but in the end, there always is something that ends up like if, if it was between me and one other person or my organization, one other organization, there always is like one little thing that sort of set the one over top versus the other. So like, what are some of the criteria that make an application more attractive or more whatever, you know, more supportable or whatever you want to call it than another? Yeah, that's a great question too. And I think, I mean, are you, are you, are you speaking more specifically from like the organizational standpoint or maybe more so on like the personal grant, like to directly to artists? Whichever you feel more confident answering. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could, I guess I can maybe speak to both. Some of it, you know, like obviously there's this, there's a, there's a, that there's now there's an emphasis on diversity and equity and inclusion and make sure that organizations specifically or museums or, or alternative art spaces are engaging with and supporting other communities in, in equitable ways. So I think if, 
if like as an organization you you are proposing programs with majority you know white artists and presenters i think that might be something that somebody might not be as excited about obviously we're we're very excited to hear from people other than white people at this point that feels what white men, white, white men, men yes. just to be spe- and i'm i'm, I'm one of yeah, those heter- yeah heterosexual white men yes. are are not the dominant powers anymore <laughs> in the art world yeah yeah so diversity is is important to be honest i don't beyond that i mean as far as like budget goes i, I think there's always and this is true for organizations and also individuals is the budget appropriate for whatever project that is being proposed oftentimes for us specifically when when we're applying to the national endowment for the arts we might request sixty thousand dollars and we'll get thirty thousand dollars sometimes we get half of what we ask for sometimes even less if if we get selected at all so and I'm not really sure. I don't know that we get feedback exactly why that they are deciding in those ways. I mean, you know, occasionally we'll get uh, our, our grant writer will follow up to get feedback with respect to maybe some things why we weren't selected. A lot of it, you know, again, comes down to reporting. You mentioned reporting earlier, like the the organizational reports are pretty arduous. And so I think a lot of people who aren't, who sit on these boards sometimes aren't necessarily arts people. So they obviously want to have some accountability or, you know, they want to encourage accountability. Like how do you measure these metrics aside from just like people who come in the door? How do you measure, how do you, how do you gauge success? And I think that's kind of an abstract concept for art exhibitions, arts programming, aside from how many bodies there are. So that's something that, you know, we've, we've, we've come up against. And then I think in terms of, in, you know, in terms of like our, our, you know, the fulcrum fund in which we are granting directly to artist proposals, it's a question of like, oftentimes like is like, do the, do the jurors or panelists find the artwork interesting or vital? And, and this is speaking specifically for somebody who is proposing a project, not kind of separate from the, the COVID relief grants that we were talking about a second ago. But oftentimes, you know, when we're reviewing these applications with jurors will be like, Oh, this, this is not interesting to me at all. Like, I really don't like this idea. So sometimes it's like, you need to, you need to workshop an idea. Think about something like why our executive director always asks why here and now, like, why is this important? You know, oftentimes too, it's like the quality of quality of the art obviously plays into that, but you know, the artwork samples, sometimes it's being a little more nitpicky. Not everyone has access to professional photographer or, not everyone knows how to write grants, but if you're kind of missing a lot of the points in terms of like, you think that this should be funded, but you can't convey that in an articulate way to somebody, you know, to kind of convince somebody, then that'll, that'll be something that they, they skip over. Hold on. You said something there. You said in a convincing way. I mean, is that the role of, a, of an application to be convincing? I think so. I mean, I think you, you, if, if there's this, like a substantial amount of money behind something, like for example, somebody asked for $10,000, like the, from, from the panel or the juror standpoint, they're like, why should I give you $10,000 to execute this project? And in, in some cases, you know, we've seen, you know, between when it comes down to a choice between one or one or two, there's always those that are like, it's, it's a little bit more well-written, and I think I think there's just oftentimes little things that kind of stand out. Maybe their budgets a little bit tighter, 
we, you would you, you'd be amazed at the amount of applications that we get for somebody who wants to you know like there's like one line on their on their budget and it's ten thousand dollars to buy a truck to turn into a mobile gallery to show artwork and like it's for buying a truck fixing it up tricking it out making it drivable for artwork you know and the jurors are like well i don't want to give you ten thousand dollars to buy a truck because you're not doing you're not telling me what you're going to do with it aside from put it on like what kinds of artists are you going to work with are you are you making the art are you choosing other having other people show their work in it are you engaging with the community outside of just showing our work so i mean there's things like that that that, that kind of kind of help n- narrow those those selections a little bit more okay that's a great example so so what you're saying for wh- what i'm hearing from you is like when you when i as an artist were writing a grant i should try to be almost obsessively specific about exactly what i choose what i'm trying to do and try to make it uh, sort of not only just say like I'm going to make this really cool thing, but like itemize all the part, the, the, the entire elements of the process and sort of instead of just say, and then I'm going to have an exhibition, you itemize sort of even the, 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 the patrons of like, who will be the patron who, you know, you know, 35% these kinds of people, 20% these kinds of people, like it be as specific and, and as sort of OCD sort of like itemized about every little detail as possible. Even, I mean, the problem that I have is that to me, that's very abstract. Like, when I say, "Oh, I'm gonna," I will then I will do an exhibition, and 35% of the particip- the p- patrons will be minorities. Like, I can't guarantee that. Right. I would I would say you don't have to go that far in terms of forecasting your attendees, but you know, if if you're proposing an exhibition, you know, like if like for example, you're an independent curator, you're pro- you're writing a grant. Who like what the exhibition's about? Who the artists are in the exhibition? You know, artwork samples from each of them. You know, we've had cases where somebody's proposing a street fair with five main artists who are going to make sculptures, but they only provided work samples for three of them. So the jurors like, well, these are pretty cool, but the other two are question marks because he didn't send us in. You know, I don't feel comfortable funding something that I can't verify the artwork quality. So artwork quality is, you know, again, you know, continues to come up in in that case. But I think by far and large, like your, your point about specificity and like really thinking about the steps and like, you know, we ask for timelines and like, when do you anticipate having your event? Like if it's a year from now, what are you going to be doing in the meantime? So you're not like doing it right up until the last minute. Is it spread out? Are you like doing studio visits? Are you writing something when, you know, it might be beneficial to have a writing sample so that we can see where the, so the jurors can, can read about how you're phrasing our work, how you're writing about it, how you're placing it within a particular context. Okay, wait, within that, though, how do you feel like, because I've, I've gone back and forth with this with other people is like, how do you feel about, let's say an artist applying for a grant, but having a writer or a curator or whoever, some, some other person write the grant for them versus they write it themselves? What's your position on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Not everyone can, can write, not everyone can, you know, writing, I mean, you've, you, you've talked about it, writing grants is hard. I mean, I think it's it kind of a, it's it's a different form of writing I think than just than just writing about something. You have to kind of I don't know think think about it from from an from somebody who doesn't have either affinity or experience in art. So you're trying to explain something and and you know again be 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 convincing 
but we've, you know, we've, I, I see it a lot. You know, we have kind of a number of consultants in, in our community who, who will help artists polish, I guess you would say that they're, you know, their, their proposals. I don't, I don't know that they're written entirely by, you know, these consultants, but you, you know, again, I mean, if my position, like, Basically, smaller grants where it's an individual artist, I think it's great where the artist sort of maybe, maybe writes a rough draft and then they get it refined by somebody else, but probably no need for somebody else to write it. But as the right. grants get bigger, you're talking 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, absolutely the idea of having some other person either assist or completely do for you, is, I feel it's more legitimate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of artists out there who are incredible makers, really great idea people, but maybe don't necessarily either have the, like the, the desire or the attention that's necessary to, to fill out applications like that. So I think getting, you know, again, you know, artists are, you know, generally very resourceful. So I think it's natural for them to, to kind of find out other people, you know, to, to either workshop their idea or to kind of get some assistance to write it. And I think that's, I think it's totally fine. Yeah. Okay. Wait, I've got this big question. Now, I, keep in mind, I'm the insecure artist getting ready to write a grant for a place, let's say. And I'm always afraid before I write the grant of writing to the granting organization and asking questions. Because I feel like if I write to you all and ask you questions, it sort of looks bad on me because I, I, I obviously don't know enough to how to do it. So I have to ask a bunch of stupid questions. So like, is that a thing or is that totally my neuroses? I don't no, I don't I don't I don't think that's a thing. I mean, I think having been on the 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 receiving end of a lot of those emails, people will ask questions and and generally we I want to and and this 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 comes up too where somebody's like, "What about this?" and I'm like, "It's on the website." And I look for it and then it's not on the website. I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, I better write that down because if you have a question, somebody else can have a question." So sometimes it's helpful, but you know, I think I think the important thing is to like read over all the materials. And, you know, if you can't find something that you should definitely ask questions because it's, it's not, it's not going to count against you. And I think there's been a number of people that we've worked with who have, you know, been asking lots of questions. And I think it kind of helps. I would rather have somebody ask a lot of questions and have like a, a, a much cleaner application that the jurors can like easily understand than to have like all these just things that don't either meet eligibility criteria or other things. Cause like you didn't ask any questions. like, why don't you ask any questions or why don't you re reach out about this or read the website or things like that. So I think if, you know, in, in some cases for, for organizations, it's, it's harder to get somebody, but you know, to, you know, to ask questions, but you know, I think on speaking from personal experience, I'm always really quick to respond because I think asking questions is an important part of it, you know, and again, cause we're, we're situating this to the artist level. We don't expect that artists know how to write grants or are very good at it necessarily. So we want to make things as accessible and transparent and, and just right there so that, so that they can hopefully have some success writing, writing a grant or two. Marvelous. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm not a journalist. I'm a professor, I'm a practicing artist, and now, of course, I'm a podcaster. So, like, I have a sincere desire to learn what you know, because, <laughs> like, you have knowledge that I do not have, and it, it will help me and also help the listeners to sort of do our jobs better if we can hear the insights and experiences yeah. from the people that are doing these things. So, like, I really want to know. 
but I'm still going to be scared about writing applications and, <laughs> and asking questions. There's nothing you can say that will stop that. <laughs> okay, social media. Do you use it? Is it a positive? Is it an annoyance? Like, what's your sort of role, your position on social media these days? So I have two. I have two other colleagues, and we kind of we kind of split a lot of stuff at work. You know, we all have our kind of main responsibilities, if you will. But then there's a lot of stuff that there's a lot of overlap on. Social media has gotten to be. I, w- I will also lump that into marketing because our executive director does everything the executive director does, but she also does the design work for any publications that we do which is a tremendous amount of work, but we're kind of left with the, 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 the social media aspect. And, you know, we're not social media millennial geniuses, I guess you could say we, and it's kind of, and, it's, and sometimes we're really good about it. You know, we have a scheduler where we, if we have time, we'll kind of like plan some plan and schedule some posts so that we don't have to kind of actively be doing that. Cause it, it takes, you know, Contrary to what a lot of people think, it, it takes a lot of time to, to try and craft and keep up with those messages, especially across multiple platforms. Like we primarily use Facebook and Instagram, although we do occasionally use Twitter. But I think, you know, going back to the grants, I think it's social media has been one of the primary ways that people find out about what we're doing. And especially through grants, I mean, some of some of our post announcing call for call for applications and things like that go get circulated a huge number of times. And we also do radio marketing through our kind of NPR affiliate here in Albuquerque. And we have, you know, good relationship with the Albuquerque Journal. It's a print publication that we do imprint advertising with also with Southwest Contemporary is kind of like a turning into a, a really great regional resource for, for artists. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's a publication that does criticism and artist profiles and lots of things that are that are desperately needed here in our region. But so we do print advertising and I think by far one of the things that we've noticed is that overwhelming majority of people who come to our events, I mean we do have obviously a built-in built-in audience, but I think some of the new things that people come to event programming since we've been virtual for the last 8 months, 7 months, whatever, long time is that we are noticing that a lot of people are coming via social media and that's been a, a, a very vital way for us to kind of reach out and continue to maintain an audience. Otherwise, you know, the word of mouth is, is obviously really important, but you know, if we're not meeting in person right now to get caught up on things or talk about some of the fun things that we've done, then that kind of drops off as well. So I would say it's, it's definitely an important part of, of what we do. Yeah. Okay, you brought up COVID and the, all the stuff that's going on with that. There's like statistics floating around saying that like we're going to lose 12% of our institutions over the course of this entire pandemic. What has what have you all figured out as a way to rejigger or, or sort of like zigzag around the limitations and the, the difficulties of this situation to try to make them some sort of a benefit or a proactive ideas to moving forward? Well, I think obviously as, as everyone's kind of pivoting to, to virtual programming, I think that's going to be something that is going to be key moving forward is, is kind of a component. I mean, obviously there's, you know, we talked about this before, before we started, but I think there's no substitute for being able to see art in person, be able to exchange ideas in person, being able to do things tangibly like workshops and use your hands in kind of a learning context. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we can't do, but 
as all museums and other creative arts organizations are doing, they're kind of reconfiguring the way that they can present things. And we started this summer off with collage programming, looking at collage artists, but kind of in that spirit of virtualness. These were animators who are using collage as a central process and then making film with collage. So we, we presented kind of a virtual film festival and digital exhibition highlighting artists, you know, collage artists that are using animation in their practice. So I, I think there's a lot of things that are a natural kind of fit with, with that, with that programming or, or with that, with that format. But I don't know that it'll ever really go away now that everybody's become having to have become so adept at it or make it work. But I think, you know, we, we opened up briefly, it must've been like the beginning of October for a month and a half to in-person, small in-person viewing by appointment only at 516 Arts. And, you know, there was a number of people who came in, but I think people are still generally wary of going to places like museums or movie theaters. My concern is, is that like, I mean, the idea of the virtual, any, whatever, you know, virtual interactive stuff, workshops, et cetera, they're fine. They're great. I do online teaching. I do online portfolio reviews. I'm good with a certain amount of virtual stuff. But it's not really how the question for me is like in the long term, how is that going to be able to be sustainable? Because like you're not going to be able to pay your rent and pay your or mortgage or whatever you will have and your 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 salaries and your air conditioning through virtual whatever's like it's not. I mean, so how is that? I'm asking you to prognosticate for the future. I know. But like but like how is that? You know, how can you make it into a sustainable uh way of doing things, I guess, is the question. Right. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've been kind of in an unusual position where we've, as an organization, we're always, I mean, we're, we're, we're very small. We don't charge admission. So admission has never been factored into our overhead. You know, like I mentioned, we're, we're grant funded. And I think we're kind of still coasting on a lot of, a lot of programs and grants and things like that, that, you know, that we had gotten to sustain us through the end of this year. So I don't, I don't know how you maintain, you know, some, some sort of sustainability, especially if you're asking people to pay for presumably paying to participate in virtual programming, which, you know, if, you know, if you're doing a a workshop and things like that, like that, that might be something that is feasible, but I don't know that that would translate into a substantial amount of income for any organization aside from somebody who can, you know, a huge institution that can continually churn out workshops and talks and performances and things like that. Well, like, well, for instance, like you, you've been talking about how you all are grant funded. So like by chance, I, I haven't done any research on this. So help me out. So like, are there grants that are starting to show up that are going to help organizations such as yourself to create virtual exhibitions and things like this? Like, so like, you know, like in the past you've gotten grants to help for physical exhibitions, but so like, will, funding be available to help with virtual exhibitions? You know, I, w- I would think so. I think I think a lot of foundations and funders at this point are, are kind of recognizing the severity of this crisis and its implications for conventional art viewing. And if we can't do things in person, like there's still a lot of great organizations that are just churning out programs and content, but obviously can't do it without substantial support. And so I think from, from what I've kind of gathered is that there is some flexibility from, from a lot of those 
foundations to kind of like we we recognize that we like you can't have people in your space so we're going to hopefully try and make this a little bit easier for everyone by being more flexible with what we ask for ask organizations to do or something like that so and i know i i saw an opportunity recently from a foundation that's like encouraging people to kind of look about look look to electronic art and digital art and how that can factor into virtual virtual programming so that's those are for funding specifically for for programs that are addressing that virtual format in 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 a creative way so i think i think there's been i think there's going to be some flexibility in that and and it might be more common to see those funding opportunities that are you know kind of asterisks in person or online or something kind of okay now you all already have some some virtual exhibitions, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Did you use any unique or sort of upgraded technologies for that? Because like that to me, that's another level of a potential barrier of, of things. Like so, like I, I, don't get me wrong. The reason why I'm asking is because like I've never created the construct of a digital exhibition so like i'm sort of wondering a a standard photograph of a piece of art is not going to be enough like you need something there's some newer better 3d technology i'm sure that needs to be incorporated have you invested in any of that kind of stuff have you looked at any of that kind of stuff you know we've 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 done a fair amount of kind of experimentation exploration into that like our our budget you know like i mentioned we're kind of a a mid-size a small to mid-size organization and I think some of it too was just getting creative with like, how can we present this in an interesting way that somebody wants to look at? Some of it's just, you know, like a, like an image of the artwork on our website for some things. Some of it's like a lot more detailed images that are kind of mixed up in there. Some of it's like a mix of film or films or videos from the exhibition that are kind of on a, like a a video room kind of page. So we're kind of like, I mean, we, we obviously don't have it figured out yeah by any means but we're kind of experimenting with things to see what works and like what makes sense and what's interesting well and how do people engage too like i think we just we don't even have enough knowledge about that yet because people are still like participants are still trying out different things also in the same way that people who are producing these exhibitions are trying out some different technologies as well yeah exactly exactly and i and i think one of the other questions too is how do you keep people coming back because some people might like the novelty of like going through an exhibition digitally you know and in April was like kind of cool. You're like, wow, I can see this show in New York. And, and then all of a sudden you're just like, what, you remember that time I did that digital exhibition and then like completely forgot all about it. Or, you know, so it's like trying, yeah, try, trying to find something that works in, in some kind of format that, that people are excited about. It's tough. I mean, you know, it's not only keeping them excited and interested, but it's also keeping up with the technologies. Cause I'm sure not only, are there existing technologies right now? But I'm quite certain there are th- hundreds, if not thousands, of new technologies going to be coming out in the next couple of years that are going to be whatever upgrades, better, faster, more sure. beautiful. And some, and and you know, kind of like halfway through, this was like in the summer, we kind of had a pushback. There was like this sort of saturation of digital content. We were like, well, maybe we should just go back to analog. So we like made a made a catalog and you know have like a an, like a an artifact, I guess of 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 this of this virtual exhibition but it also exists as a catalog and 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 so that felt that felt almost maybe more exciting than the than the digital content because you're creating an object or something that people you know especially artists really love to be 
published in books and things like that. So that was, I think that was important too. All right. Last little bit. Do you have any sort of advice uh, moving forward? So whether it's about grants, exhibitions, um, COVID related, whatever, something that some experiences that you've had that you could pass on to the listeners. I mean, I think speaking personally, thinking back in, into my, I guess, my early career was like, I was really interested in art and I didn't know how to get started. And so I just sort of asked a lot of questions, got involved in, you know, in some ways. And then I kind of, it kind of opened up pathways for me. So I think if, if people have impulses to explore, I think exploration is really important. Experimentation is really important and really kind of push yourself into maybe uncomfortable positions. I, I, I guess speaking again, specifically, I, I was very shy as a kid. And when I got the, my job at 516, I had to give educational tours and I had to talk in front of people about art. And so suddenly I was like thrust into this position of being able, having, having to have a conversation about and describing art and all of its, its, its context with, with, you know, young people, but also college people, people who were in PhD programs. So that was, one of those things I was like, well, I guess I have to do this. If this is what I want to do, I guess we'll find out. So I would say push, push yourself into, into uncomfortable positions and try and figure out what works, what, what you like and what you don't, don't like. If, you know, if you don't like it, don't spend any time on it, but I'm always trying to, 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 to get new skills and trying to learn new things. Cause there's always, there's always something that you can take on from your experiences as, as you move forward and, and thinking specifically about podcasting. Like this is, this is great. I mean, I think it's, it's a really, transformative way to have conversations and bring conversations to other people and you know just figuring out how to do it i'm what i mean what was your background like did 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 you always know that you wanted to do podcasting or is it just like i'm gonna do this i uh, no (laughs) i'm for i'm 47 years old like podcasting wasn't even on my radar until maybe 10 years ago and uh and the idea of being a podcaster sort of was just like that's ridiculous that that's not even a job yeah you know so like now it, it's still not really a job for majority of people that do podcasts it's sure. more of like a you know a hobby or a side job kind of thing so um it's great fun i mean i've learned far more by participating by doing this by talking to people and listening to what everybody's experiences are than any books or any classes I've ever had, like just hearing the wealth of variety of perspectives, uh, you know, like from major museums down to like local artists, like the, the whole range of experiences and insights are very fascinating about the diversity of the creative fields. I mean, there's so much, you know, like you said, like you didn't, you got out of school and you had no idea what you wanted to do. Theoretically, if somebody were to like listen to all the people I've talked to on the podcast, they probably would find a job that they're like, "Hey, that job yeah. sounds cool." Because <laughs> like, yeah, I I get to talk to all kinds of people, and it's so much fun because everybody's got something different to say. So, right, yeah, but but my father is a minister, so I got the good voice. Yeah, for I radio. have to say you you are you are perfectly suited for for radio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't have the looks for TV, but I have the the voice for radio for sure. That's all that matters, right? It is. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it was great talking to you. 